Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fiscamol, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. This is the first official episode of season three. We had a, what we're calling an unpreview that was actually the podcast notes for this episode. We had already recorded it, realized things were running a bit longer than y'all like to listen. Uh, so we decided to split them into two. We're re-recording this opening segment. And through the magic of digital editing, Mike the Sound Guy is going to clean it up. And it's just going to be, this will be the pod of criminal justice fuckery. So there are no podcast notes here. If you want to know where I've been, what's going on with my life, etc., etc., uh, go listen to yesterday's episode. This one is solely about the ongoing criminal justice news across the country. We've got about three dozen stories. Sorry, we cut it. Two dozen stories uh, ready for you here today. Uh, before we get into it, though, if you haven't already, please make sure to join the conversation online. The Twitter account is at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you're not already following me, I suspect most of you are, but if not, my personal Twitter account is at Greg underscore Doucette. That is G-R-E-G underscore D-O-U-C-E-T-T-E. Our website, if you want to leave us a written comment, is Fiskamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you'd like to become one of our patrons, the people who help keep this thing rolling, it helps me pay Mike the Sound Guy and our hosting and everything else, you can do that on patreon.com slash fisk. That is patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. Uh, for just $7 a month, we do have about, I'm not sure how many we have at this point. We have several Law 140s on a variety of topics spanning the past two years. So let's hop into all of our criminal justice fuckery. Now I want to point out, as we go through this, we're hoping to get back into a regular rotation, but I have hundreds, literal hundreds of stories that accrued during our hiatus. So as we go forward, I'm going to try and like blend in some of the old stuff with the new stuff so that we can slowly whittle that down. Uh, but there's a lot. There's a lot of material, perpetual dumpster fires all over the country. So just kind of know as we're going through today, there's going to be some new stuff, but there's also going to be some old stuff mixed in. Uh, but let's start, as we always do, with the court news. The Supreme Court is wrapping up its term, and with that, you have a flurry of decisions that come out. There are four of them in particular that matter with respect to the stuff that we cover. There are probably more than that, but there are four that I pay attention to. And we're going to start with the terrible ones first. Uh, so we have Neves versus Bartlett, uh, which is a total garbage decision. It was a – I did a fractional justices, so I'm calling this a 7.25 justices in the majority to a 1.75 justice uh, dissent. But essentially this case was a Section 1983 lawsuit for retaliatory arrest. A guy named Russell Bartlett sued the police because while there was some event going on up in Alaska, the police were grilling a pair of kids about whether or not they were drinking underage. And Bartlett came up. He was inebriated but told the kids they don't have to talk to the police. They have rights. All true stuff. The officers arrested him for being drunk and disorderly. Eventually, it ended up being the only charge was resisting, delaying, obstructing a police officer. It's what we call contempt of cop. And the officers, when they arrested him, said point blank, bet you wish you shut up now. That was actually part of the trial record. Well, the case got thrown out. And the question before the Supreme Court 
was what happens if you have if the police have a basis to arrest you for any reason but they choose to arrest you for an unlawful reason so like in the discrimination context if you're an employer and you're terrible at your job but i choose to fire you because you're black or because you're a woman that would violate the law that would violate title 7 but if you're the cops and you can arrest me for being drunk but you choose to arrest me because i exercised my first amendment rights what those 7.25 Supreme Court justices said was that that's totally fine. So I'm not going to read you their opinion because their opinion is trash. It is total trash. It is a terrible decision. Uh, Justice Ginsburg concurred in the judgment in part and dissented in part. There was nothing terribly notable there. The two highlight opinions from that decision, there was a partial concurrence, partial dissent from Justice Gorsuch, and then an excellent dissent from Justice Sotomayor. But what the, what the majority has held, so that 7.25 justice majority has held, is that you can't sue for retaliatory arrest unless you can find what are called comparators, finding other similarly situated people who were arrested and did not have the same situation as you as far as the basis for the arrest. So if you found other drunk people who were arrested solely because they were drunk, and you were arrested solely because of your First Amendment protected speech, okay, you might have a claim. That's the gist of it. It's a, it's a mind-bogglingly stupid opinion, and I can't emphasize to you the stupidity of the opinion. But Justice Gorsuch, in his partial concurrence, points out that in today's era, you can uh, be arrested for pretty much anything at any time for any reason because we have a shitload of crimes on the books. So he says, quote, History shows that governments sometimes seek to regulate our lives finely, acutely, thoroughly, and exhaustively. In our own time and place, criminal laws have grown so exuberantly and come to cover so much previously innocent conduct that almost anyone can be arrested for something. If the state could use these laws not for their intended purposes, but to silence those who voice unpopular ideas, little would be left of our First Amendment liberties, and little would separate us from the tyrannies of the past or the malignant fiefdoms of our own age. The freedom to speak without risking arrest is one of the principal characteristics of which we distinguish a free nation. So if probable cause can't erase a First Amendment violation, the question becomes whether its presence at least forecloses a civil claim for damages as a statutory matter under Section 1983. But look at that statute as long as you like, and you will find no reference to the presence or absence of probable cause as a precondition or defense to any suit. Instead, the statute imposes liability on anyone who, under color of state law, subjects another person to the deprivation of any rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution. Maybe it would be good policy to graft a no probable cause requirement onto the statute, as these officers insist. Or maybe not. Either way, that's an appeal better directed to Congress than to this court. Our job isn't to write or revise legislative policy, but to apply it faithfully. Amen. Amen. And Justice Sotomayor was the lone justice truly in dissent. So like Gorsuch partially concurred, Ginsburg partially concurred. Sotomayor was like, no, this is total bullshit. And I loved her dissent. A few excerpts. She says, quote, by rejecting direct evidence of unconstitutional motives in favor of more convoluted comparative proof. Now, I'm going to pause. Remember, the officers said point blank 
that I wish you, I bet you wish you had shut up now. That is the direct evidence. There was evidence that they arrested Bartlett because of his speech. And the court has said, no, you have to find similarly situated people who were not arrested in order to make your claim. So you're going from this direct evidence to this convoluted comparative bullshit. She continues, the majority standard proposes to ration First Amendment protection in an illogical manner. And those arbitrary legal results, in turn, will breed opportunities for the rare, ill-intentioned officer to violate the First Amendment without consequence. And in some cases, openly and unabashedly. Now, I'm going to stop. This whole rare, ill-intentioned officer thing always cracks me the fuck up because no one believes that officers routinely do stuff, even though we have had this podcast going off nothing but bad cop stories for over two years now. And don't even get me started on the whole qualified immunity doctrine because holy shit. Uh, but just as Sotomayor continues, she says, quote, the basic error of the court's new rule is that it arbitrarily fetishizes one specific type of mode of evidence, the treatment of comparators at the expense of other modes of proof. In particular, the majority goes out of its way to forswear reliance on an officer's own statements, even though such direct admissions may often be the best available evidence of unconstitutional motive. As a result, the court's standard in some cases will have the strange effect of requiring courts to blind themselves to smoking gun evidence while simultaneously insisting upon an inferential sort of proof that, though it's potentially powerful, can be prohibitively difficult to obtain. So that's from the Neves v. Bartlett decision. We'll give you a link to it in the show notes. It is total garbage. Uh, the only good news is that it's a statutory case, meaning it was not something interpreting the Constitution, so Congress could theoretically fix it if our Congress critters weren't totally useless. Uh, the next one, Gamble versus the United States. This is another fucking garbage decision that t came out. So you have all heard about the Fifth Amendment. You can't be put twice in jeopardy of life or limb for the same offense. And one of the questions is, what is the same offense? How do you determine that? And we have this test that we call the Blockburger Rule. So it's from the case of United States versus Blockburger. And essentially, if two separate crimes require proving the same elements, they're considered the same crime. If either crime has something different, it's a different crime. So, for example, common law murder is the unlawful killing of another with malice aforethought. If you also had a separate statute that said something to the effect of the taking of a life without legal justification and ill will or something along those lines, it's a way of saying the same thing, even though you're using different words. So those will be treated as the same offense. Well, we have a special exception to that called the dual sovereigns exception, which means that if the state and the federal government have the exact same crime on the books, you can be prosecuted twice for the same thing. You can be punished twice for the same thing, and it doesn't violate the Fifth Amendment. It's ludicrous. It's an incredibly stupid rule that's been around for God knows how long. And there finally was a test case, this Gamble versus United States, where a guy pled guilty to a state-level gun charge and then was charged federally for the exact same crime and convicted for that too. And he appealed, saying, look, this violates double jeopardy. I'm being punished twice for the exact same conduct. And seven justices said, you know what? That's totally fine. We're going to allow that to happen. The only two who dissented was Justice Gorsuch, who wrote the dissenting opinion, and Justice Ginsburg, who joined him. So I want to read you – I'm not going to read you the majority opinion because the majority opinion sucks. It's a terrible decision. 
but I'm going to read you from the dissent. And this is not becoming the Gorsuch hour, but I'm telling you, I really, 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 really like Justice Gorsuch on criminal justice issues. He is fantastic. He's actually better than Scalia, who was the one he replaced. I love him to death. Uh, But he says in his dissent that only Ginsburg joined. No other justices joined in on this. He says, quote, A free society does not allow its government to try the same individual for the same crime until it's happy with the result. Unfortunately, the court today endorses a colossal exception to this ancient rule against double jeopardy. My colleagues say that the federal government and each state are separate sovereigns entitled to try the same person for the same crime. So if all the might of one sovereign cannot succeed against this presumptively free individual, another may insist on the chance to try again. And if both manage to succeed, so much the better they can add one punishment on top of the other. But this separate sovereign's exception to the bar against double jeopardy finds no meaningful support in the text of the Constitution, its original public meaning, structure, or history. Instead, the Constitution promises all Americans that they will never suffer double jeopardy. I would enforce that guarantee. He then goes through the history of the Fifth Amendment's text, including when it was first introduced in the very first Congress. There actually was a dual sovereign's exception in the original proposed text to the Fifth Amendment, and the Congress took it out before they passed it and sent it on to the states for ratification. So Gorsuch goes through that history, and he continues, quote, Viewed from the perspective of an ordinary reader of the Fifth Amendment, whether at the time of its adoption or in our own time, none of this can come as a surprise. Imagine trying to explain the court's separate sovereign's rule to a criminal defendant, then or now. Yes, you were sentenced to state prison for being a felon in possession of a firearm. And don't worry, the state can't prosecute you again. But a federal prosecutor can send you to prison again for exactly the same thing. What's more, that federal prosecutor may work hand-in-hand with the same state prosecutor who already went after you. They can share evidence and discuss what worked and what didn't the first time around. And the federal prosecutor can pursue you even if you were acquitted in the state case. None of that offends the Constitution's plain words protecting a person from being placed twice in jeopardy of life or limb for the same offense. Really? And he actually puts in there, really, with the question mark, which is so great. I, you know, sometimes he goes a little overboard trying to sound, you know, colloquial, speak with a common tongue. But sometimes you really just need a really question mark at the end for how fucking ludicrous some of these doctrines are. So we'll give you a link to that one. Uh, kudos to Justice Gorsuch and Justice Ginsburg. It's a damn shame they're the only two who dissented in that case. But it is not all terrible news with the Supreme Court. There were a few good decisions. So one of them is McDonough versus Smith. This was a case about the statute of limitations for a wrongful prosecution based on fabricated evidence. And this was a six to three decision with Justice Sotomayor writing the majority opinion. And a few things here. So with federal statutes of limitation on when to file civil claims, most of the time the federal statutes use the state's limitations period. So if you're filing suit in federal court for some federal thing, you know, I can't think of a good example off the top of my head, but let's use, you know, wrongful prosecution as an example. 
if North Carolina, for its tort of wrongful prosecution, has a statute of limitations for three years. You have to file your lawsuit within three years uh, of your wrongful prosecution. The federal courts will use that exact same time window for the federal version of it. So this case had a a few different moving parts. Basically, this guy, uh, McDonough, was charged for ballot fraud. And the district attorney and the investigating agency and the elections folks faked the ballots. There actually was no ballot fraud. They made up this evidence. Uh, he was a hung jury in the first round, I think, if I remember correctly, and then ended up being prosecuted again where he was acquitted and then filed a lawsuit for the wrongful, uh, wrongful prosecution. And a part of the back and forth with the justices, so Justice Thomas dissented, uh, two other justices, including Gorsuch, joined in. It seems like a big chunk of the dissent focuses on the plaintiff not defining which particular analogous state tort they think should have applied to the case. And that was kind of the, the issue behind the dissent. But what Justice Sotomayor said is, look, let's pick one. And they did. And they said that regardless, if you're picking this as your tort, your time window to file the lawsuit doesn't start until you actually win, until you're acquitted of this particular crime because you can't sue someone for malicious prosecution or wrongful prosecution, rather, uh, if your criminal trial is still pending. So from her majority opinion, I do have one snippet. She says, quote, the statute of limitations for a fabricated evidence claim like McDonough's does not begin to run until the criminal proceedings against the defendant, the guy who is the 1983 plaintiff. That's my sidebar. The defendant is your section 1983 plaintiff, uh, have terminated in his favor. This conclusion follows both from the rule for the most natural common law analogy, the tort of malicious prosecution, and from the practical considerations that have previously led this court to defer accrual of claims that would otherwise constitute an untenable collateral attack on a criminal judgment. It's the only excerpt I'm giving you because it's a dense opinion. It's a lot of inside baseball lawyery stuff. Uh, but we'll give you a link to it in the show notes if you want to read it all. And then my last Supreme Court opinion for this episode is United States versus Davis. This was a five to four decision where Justice Gorsuch joined the four liberals to declare part of the Hobbs Act, which is a federal law on gun crimes, declared that its sentencing enhancements were unconstitutionally vague. And let me back up. So we've talked about some of these prior provisions in other podcasts where Gorsuch has joined the liberals to say, look, you're using these vague terms in your criminal statutes. You can't do that. You have to actually be specific on what type of stuff is prohibited. So this outcome was predictable, in my opinion. Um, but he just he really goes all in on why it's such bullshit that we've gotten in the habit of allowing Congress to write shit laws and then try to enforce it. He starts out, and this is the opening lines of his opinion. Again, this is a 5-4 majority. He says, quote, in our constitutional order, a vague law is no law at all. Only the people's elected representatives in Congress have the power to write new federal criminal laws. And when Congress exercises that power, it has to write statutes that give ordinary people fair warning about what the law demands of them. Vague laws transgress both of those constitutional requirements. They hand off the legislature's responsibility for defining criminal behavior to unelected prosecutors and judges, and they leave people with no sure way to know what consequences will attached to their conduct. When Congress passes a vague law, the role of courts under our Constitution is not to fashion a new, clearer law to take its place, but to treat the law as a nullity, 
and invite Congress to try again. I love that paragraph. It's amazing. The rest of the opinion is good, but I just get little tingly feelings when justices say, Congress, do your fucking job and legislate. I like it. Uh, So we'll give you links to all of those. That is it on the court stuff. I figure four cases is enough for you. Let's go into the state-by-state criminal justice fuckery. And as always, well, I guess not as always, but more often than not, we start in California and we'll start in Sacramento County. So let me back up. I'm going to give you some pretext to this because as we were recording, I actually got sent a tweet for another story that we'll include next week. Uh, California passed this law requiring police to disclose uh, disciplinary records, evidence of police misconduct. And what you're finding is that the police unions fought tooth and nail to try and block this stuff from happening. The court said the law is constitutional. Go ahead and disclose the records. And departments are doing that in various ways. So some departments are actively destroying the files before they can be released. That's the story I got tweeted that we'll include next week. And then there are others that are just saying, all right, fine, here. And what you're finding is that there are a lot of dirty fucking cops in California. Uh, So this is from Sacramento County where a uh, sheriff who had opposed the transparency law is now turning over his disciplinary files, and what you find is that one of his deputies is a liar. So from that story, it says, quote, Sacramento Sheriff Scott Jones released his office's first disciplinary records under a new transparency law, a 10-year-old case involving the firing of a deputy for dishonesty. The case involved the termination of Deputy Steve Al Vasquez over a June 18, 2008 traffic stop in which sheriff's investigators concluded that Vasquez was, subquote, either deliberately untruthful or woefully lacking in accuracy. That is a misnomer like hell, woefully lacking in accuracy. Holy shit. Uh, In reports he filed on an arrest he made that day. Uh, Reached Friday, Vasquez expressed surprise at the release of the 108 pages in disciplinary documents and asked for a copy to be emailed to him before commenting. How the (laughs) fuck... I shouldn't laugh, but holy shit, you you have done this. You, as the officer who has violated the law, knew you did this, but you don't want to comment until you see what they have on you first. I mean, I guess to an extent that's smart from a PR perspective, but holy shit. Uh, Story continues, quote, the documents were released under State Bill 1421, a law that took effect January 1st and requires law enforcement agencies to release documents, videos, and other materials associated with use of force or disciplinary cases. According to the documents, Vasquez claimed he saw the suspect car, subquote, swerving between lanes, but a review of his in-car camera video, subquote, shows the suspect's vehicle remaining well-centered within his lane the entire time. Vasquez also reported that the suspect, subquote, attempted to run head-on into my vehicle, the documents say. But investigators reviewing the video said that, subquote, at no time does Despedi Vasquez's in-car camera show the suspect attempting to run head-on into his vehicle. Other discrepancies included Vasquez's claims that the suspect rammed other deputies' cars and that the suspect, subquote, was taken into custody without incident. Investigators determined the suspect backed into Vasquez's car while trying to escape, but that the other collisions occurred as deputies struck the suspect's vehicle as they tried to stop the car. They also found that Vasquez was not truthful when he reported the suspect was detained without incident. In actuality, a taser was deployed and the suspect was inadvertently bitten by a canine, a report 
report found. Subquote, the fire department was requested to provide first aid at the scene. Uh, Sheriff Scott Jones initially had balked at releasing such materials, and the Sacramento Bee sued to force their release. But once an appellate court upheld the validity of the law, Jones told the Bee in April that he would begin releasing such records as quickly as possible. Fun times in Sacramento County. Uh, Down in San Francisco, we've got a pair of stories. First, this was just a really wild uh, police raid on a journalist. So a public defender died. And the information about his death was disclosed to a reporter who then printed it. And the police actually got a search warrant, raided this journalist's home, had him detained, and apologized about it days later. But it really just shows that there's zero fucks given for respect for the press, even though publishing information, however it's gotten, as long as the reporter didn't break the law in getting it, publishing that information is legal. So from there are two different stories, one on the raid, one on the apology. I've glommed them together. Uh, story says, quote, San Francisco police raided the home of a freelance journalist who provided three Bay Area television stations with a copy of a police report into the death of public defender Jeff Adachi. Brian Carmody, a freelance videographer known in the industry as a stringer, told the San Francisco Chronicle that San Francisco police executed a search warrant at his outer Richmond district home and Western Edition office, seizing his computers, cell phones, and other electronic devices. The police department has been repeatedly castigated by city officials after the report showed up on television newscasts and in print, only hours after Adachi 59 collapsed at a Telegraph Hill apartment with a mysterious woman on February 22nd and later died. The police said it immediately opened an internal investigation into how the report was leaked. Cromody said two inspectors with the police department's Internal Affairs Bureau, subquote, politely asked for his source on the Adachi report two weeks ago, but Cromody declined to reveal the person name. Then, around 8.30 in the morning, he awoke to a banging sound on the outer gate of his home. When he went outside, about 10 officers were trying to break down the gate with a sledgehammer. When he willingly opened the gate, he said police handcuffed him and streamed into his home. Last month, San Francisco supervisors called a special hearing at which they lambasted the department over the release of the report related to Adachi's death. Adachi was a major figure in criminal justice reform, a police watchdog, and fierce foe of law enforcement. So that's the first story. Second story after the apology, because it's fucking illegal to raid a journalist's home for lawfully published information. Uh, story says, quote, San Francisco's police chief apologized on Friday for raiding a journalist's home and office to find out who leaked a police report into the unexpected death of the city's former public defender. Chief William Scott told the San Francisco Chronicle on Friday the searches were probably illegal. <laughs> I fucking love that. They're probably illegal. Uh, and said, quote, I'm sorry that this happened. California's shield law protects journalists from search warrants, and the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that journalists are free to report on newsworthy information contained in stolen documents. Scott said he has reviewed all material related to the searches, and he was concerned the initial warrants didn't adequately identify Kermode as a journalist. So, quote, the description of what his role entails as a journalist, there should have been more clarity there, Scott said. That is going to be a concern that has to be explored further. Meanwhile, spoiler alert, they're going to get sued, and the journalist is going to get paid a tidy sum of taxpayer money because they violated his constitutional rights. So that is the city of San Francisco. Out in San Francisco County, 
Uh, they are paying a shitload of overtime to sheriff's deputies in part because they still use paper timesheets in 2019. Uh, story says, quote, the San Francisco auditor found overtime to be on the rise at the sheriff's department because of new bail reform mandates requiring deputies to do more work, generous comp time formulas, and outdated paper timesheets. In a report published this month, the audit found that the sheriff's budgeted staff went down 1%. But the total hours of work went up 13%, and a proportion of those hours worked on overtime increased from 14% to slightly more than 20%. And the story goes over, they're providing more security to local hospital, they're doing more electronic monitoring. It continues, quote, this work comes at a time when the sheriff's department seems to be insufficiently staffed. While the auditor found that the agency has enough supervisors, 76, the auditors found the agency is short on deputies. It needs 761, but only has 585. And the auditor said that some of the sheriff's work, at least 34 positions, could be done by non-sworn staff, people who don't take an oath to be law enforcement. That would save the department nearly $1 million. Not only that, but the audit found that the sheriff's department still uses manual timesheets and that the system is antiquated. Sometimes supervisors don't state what date their overtime was worked, which can make it appear, for example, that the employee worked overtime on the day when the timesheet was submitted rather than the day before. This creates extra work for the payroll staff and can lead to payroll errors. A watchdog group found that that was incredible. So, quote, wow, it's 2019, and an agency with a $5 billion payroll still uses pen and paper for tracking overtime, said Robert Fellner, executive director of Transparent California, a nonpartisan think tank that tracks public salaries. Subquote, that's nuts. Sidebar, it absolutely is. Story continues, quote, there were other problems with the manual timesheets, too. The audit found that the sheriff's department does not sufficiently track and analyze special requests for security from the courts. When the courts make a special request for additional security, such as for a high-profile court case, the department maintains timesheets of the employees who worked on that special request. However, supervisors do not analyze the timesheet data to determine how many special requests it has received, how often they're received, or how many employees work on them. Compounding these challenges is the fact that the city's subquote people in pay system does not allow the sheriff to accurately monitor employees' work hours when their shift spans two days. I shouldn't laugh, but Jesus, this is basic shit. Like I when I dropped out of college years ago and worked at a law firm as a paralegal, their timesheet system was able of doing this. Uh, the system in its current configuration shows how many hours were worked on a given day, but not whether those hours were the continuation of a shift that started the previous day or one of two separate shifts. So if an employee works 16 consecutive hours spanning two days, the system only captures the hours worked on each day. The story goes on from there. It's ludicrous. It blows my mind that our government is that incompetent. I shouldn't say our government because California, y'all are paying for this, uh, but it's crazy. So that are the stories out of California. All the way across the country in Florida, we have both the first and third rules of Fisk. Remember, the first rule of Fisk is that police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. And the third rule is that there are no new stories. There are just new names and new jurisdictions. Uh, so you might remember back in episode 86, we talked about Sheriff's Deputy Zachary Wester in Jackson County, Florida, uh, where he was fired because he had been framing people. He had been planting drugs in their cars. Well, there was actually an investigation done, and this guy has framed at least, at least 118 people that they know about. 
So this is from The Appeal, and it's a long-form style of journalism interspersed, uh, interspersing the, the stories with the news. So just kind of bear with me because there's a lot of excerpts to read through because holy shit. And it goes on after the stuff I'm going to tell you. Uh, it says, quote, in October 2017, Derek Benefield was driving in the Florida Panhandle's Jackson County when he was pulled over for allegedly swerving into the opposite lane. Once at the car, Sheriff's Deputy Zachary Wester claimed to smell marijuana and conducted a search of the vehicle, which, he reported, turned up methamphetamine and marijuana. Despite insisting the drugs weren't his, Benefield was arrested, convicted, charged $1,100 in fines and court fees, and sentenced to one year in county jail. Benefield was seven months into his sentence. When, in September 2018, the state attorney's office dropped his case and those of 118 others. Largely thanks to the diligence of one assistant state attorney, Webster was suspected of routinely planting drugs during traffic stops over his two years in the department. Last month, Benefield and eight others filed a federal lawsuit accusing Wester and two other deputies of planting drugs and making illegal arrests, and accusing the Jackson County Sheriff's Office of negligence. The suit accuses all the defendants of violating the individual's civil and constitutional rights through illegal searches, seizures, detentions, prosecutions, and incarcerations. The plaintiff's attorney, Mary Maddox, told the appeal the suit represents subquote only the tip of the iceberg, and she plans to add another 18 to 20 plaintiffs. At least 37 people have filed lawsuits against Wester at the state level. The sheriff's office declined to comment. Probably smart. Story continues, quote, a criminal investigation into Wester's behavior was opened last August by the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, but no charges have been filed. Maddox said that for the first time, three of her clients were subpoenaed for interviews in connection with that investigation in early June. This is months after the investigation began, almost a year later. They finally get scheduled for interviews after civil rights lawsuits get filed. Uh, story continues, quote, it didn't take Christina Pumphrey long to become familiar with Zachary Wester's name. When she was hired as an assistant state attorney at the 14th Judicial Circuit in May 2018, her duties included reviewing evidence before filing charges in several categories of arrests, including drug possession. Subquote, this is an exaggeration, but it felt like Wester's name was on half the cases, Pumphrey told the appeal. Subquote, it was seriously disproportionate. As she watched the body camera footage from Wester's arrests, Pumphrey grew concerned. His vehicle searches were not always conducted legally, and his written affidavits didn't always match what she saw in the videos. People's reactions to their arrest also seemed unusual. Subquote, it wasn't, okay, crap, I got busted. It was, what do you mean? Pumphrey began looking more closely at Wester's arrests. When the Eternal Affairs Division of the Sheriff's Office heard she was looking into his arrests and asked for more information, she shared several body camera videos and explained what to look for. Within weeks, the Sheriff's Office pulled Wester off the road and asked the law enforcement department to investigate. More than 100 people who Wester had arrested during his two years on the force were still out on bond or, if their arrest had violated probation, behind bars. Yet the state attorney's office did not immediately move to drop the cases. At the time, Pumphrey said she was, quote, getting explicit instructions to not dismiss these cases. Subquote, I know these people are sitting in jail. I know that the particular charges they're in jail on, they're either innocent of, based on the information I see, or there's no way I could take this in front of a jury. But I'm being told, just let them sit in jail. 
Pumphrey continued pulling Wester's earlier arrest videos for the sheriff's office, including ones from closed cases that had been assigned to other attorneys in her office. In August, she flagged a February 2018 video of Wester pulling over Teresa Odom for a faulty brake light and allegedly finding a baggie of methamphetamine in her truck. But looking closely, Pumphrey noticed something hidden in Wester's hand as he initiated the search. The Odium video could not be ignored. Within weeks of Pumphrey's discovery, the sheriff's office fired Wester, and late September, the state attorney's office dropped 119 cases that relied on his arrests or testimony. The story goes on from there. It is a long read. It's scary as hell to think that one deputy alone is responsible for at least 119 people being jailed, some being convicted and spending months in prison, all because he planted the fucking evidence. He was faking it. They didn't actually do anything. He made all this shit up. So that's out of Florida. Uh, Over in Hawaii, you might remember this from episode 57, uh, the prosecutor in Honolulu is going to prison. So we talked about this back when the officers that were involved in this case were put on trial, or they were indicted, rather, for fabricating evidence. story says, quote, Two U.S. Marshals led a former Honolulu prosecutor out of a courtroom Friday when a U.S. judge ordered her detained after a jury found her guilty of conspiracy, and he expressed concern that she could try to obstruct justice before being sentenced. Catherine Kialoa left her purse with her defense attorney as the marshals approached to take her into custody after the bail hearing. She, subquote, lies as easily as she draws breath and will do anything to avoid consequences, prosecutors said in court documents seeking her detention. Subquote, this defendant is a walking crime spree. Michael Wheat, a special federal prosecutor, told the judge in court, saying she holds sway with police and has tampered with grand jury witnesses in the past. U.S. District Judge J. Michael Seabright interrupted, subquote, we heard from 12 people yesterday. In finding Kialoa and her husband, former police chief Louis Kialoa, 58, guilty of conspiracy Thursday, the jury also determined the two of them obstructed justice. The jury also convicted two officers in a plot to frame Catherine Kialoa's uncle, Gerard Puana, for the theft of a mailbox to discredit him in a family financial dispute. That was the case that we talked about where that indictment had first happened. Uh, Prosecutors said during the trial that the Kialoas were afraid the uncle would reveal fraud that enriched the couple's lavish life. Maintaining their power and prestige was a motive for the framing, prosecutors said. Have fun in prison. Uh, In Illinois, we've got a a good news, bad news type situation. So on the good news side, it turns out that they're expunging weed charges now in Illinois, which is pretty awesome. Story says, quote, if you've been arrested for weed in Illinois, you can breathe a sigh of relief. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker just signed House Bill 1438 this week, which makes cannabis legal in the state for individuals 21 and over, along with sweeping criminal justice reforms designed to help those whose lives Lives have been upended by the state's drug laws. In addition to legalizing marijuana, the 610-page bill offers relief to the roughly 770,000 residents of the state with marijuana-related offenses on their criminal records, according to the Marijuana Policy Project. The state's new Cannabis Regulation and Tax Act, which takes effect in 2020, allows people to automatically receive clemency for convictions up to 30 grams of cannabis. Those convicted with larger amounts from 30 to 500 grams can petition a court to have the charge lifted. The bill defines expunge to mean to, quote, 
physically destroy the records or return them to the petitioner and to obliterate the petitioner's name from any official index or public record or both, but it doesn't require the physical destruction of the court files. So I'm going to note that's similar to North Carolina's modified expungement laws. So we've had new expansion of our expungements, which is great, but the trade-off is that even though the documents are deleted from most spots so that you don't show up on, you know, uh, if someone tried to Google you, hopefully that stuff would be not there anymore. The prosecutors can still see it so that if you get charged for the same thing again, they'll know that you had this charge expunged. So it's a, it's a, it's one of those things where it's, it's kind of a shitty trade-off because I don't like the idea of governments keeping information on taxpayers in perpetuity. But at the same time, it relieves a lot of the collateral consequences. You know, it makes it easier to get an apartment, get a job, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I really like it as a first step. Eventually, I want people to be comfortable with the idea that the government should destroy the records they have on you if you're not a threat to society. But that's how that works in Illinois. Uh, story continues, quote, the bill also includes a social equity program, which makes it easier for those with marijuana convictions to get business licenses. The program also allocates $12 million for startup businesses relating to cannabis as well as funding for job training programs in the state's cannabis industry. So kudos for Illinois. That's the good news. The bad news is we have the first rule of Fisk again out of Freeport. Now, remember, the first rule is that police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. From that story, it says, quote, A man with an IV attached to his arm was arrested last week as he strolled outside of FHN Memorial Hospital. Police and Shaquille Dukes, the man who was arrested, agree that Dukes had no intention of stealing the hospital equipment that was attached to his body. But the other details of the case are stirring debate as a video of the June 9 incident circulates on social media. Dukes, who is black, said he was racially profiled by white security guards and police officers. He said he filed a formal complaint with the city. Freeport City Manager Lowell Crow said he plans to review Dukes' videos as well as police footage and meet with Dukes on Tuesday. Dukes, 24, has lived in Freeport for about a month. He said he had been in the hospital for two days with pneumonia when his doctor cleared him to go for a walk outside as long as he didn't leave the hospital property. Dukes, his brother, and another person went for a walk just after 4 p.m. on June 9th, but were stopped in the parking lot on their way back into the hospital, Dukes said. The security officer, who has not been named, demanded that Dukes and his companions walk over to his vehicle parked on the other side of the street. The security guard, employed by FHN, then accused Dukes of attempting to steal the hospital equipment. Subquote, he had gotten out of his vehicle and said, what are you going to do, steal that and sell it on eBay, Dukes said. I told him, subquote, this machine is pumping fluid into my veins as we speak. After some banter back and forth, the security officer radioed Freeport police, who were dispatched to the hospital around 4.40 p.m. Duke said his brother was arrested soon after police arrived, and he was arrested a few minutes later. A third man who recorded the arrests on video was also arrested. Duke said he was told by police that he was under arrest for attempted theft since he was off hospital property with the medical equipment. He said that the only reason he left hospital property was to make his way to the security officer's vehicle when the security officer ordered him to do so. 
On Monday, police said Dukes, his brother, and the other individual were arrested only because of their conduct toward the security officer and the police officers once they arrived. Dukes was ultimately charged with disorderly conduct after an investigation revealed he had no intention of stealing the IV stand, said Freeport Police Lieutenant Andrew Schroeder. Police have not been able to confirm whether Dukes had permission to walk outside of the hospital. Dukes said once he was arrested, the IV was removed from his arm and his rescue inhaler was seized. Subquote, eventually, while I was being transported, I passed out and had a seizure, Dukes said. Subquote, when I woke up in the back of the car, I had an asthma attack. I didn't get my inhaler until probably four minutes later. And keep in mind, all this shit was on video. Uh, utterly ludicrous. That's out of Freeport, Illinois. Over in Minnesota, in Hennepin County, uh, the elected district attorney, Mike Freeman, checked in to get treated for alcohol abuse. I'm not going to go into too much detail. I'll give you a link to the story. I'm glad the guy's getting help, but you got to ponder for a minute. Can you imagine the hypocrisy that it takes to run an office where you routinely cage people for alcohol abuse while you yourself are engaging in alcohol abuse? You know, a lot of people, when they hear these podcasts, they say, I'm too hard on police. I'm too hard on prosecutors. Aren't I a defense attorney? You know, aren't I accustomed to seeing people in their worst moments, et cetera, et cetera? I am. But the difference between the typical defendants and the police and prosecutors and judges that I criticize is that my clients aren't getting paid with tax money vested with the power of the state to ruin other people's lives. It's an immense amount of power that government officials have. And when you are in that role, you have a special obligation to be above reproach. You don't get to be an alcoholic. You don't get to be a drug addict. You don't get to be a criminal when you're given tax money, a badge, and the authority to destroy people. So again, I'm not going to go into this too much because I understand addiction is real. I represent addicts in court. I don't want to pile on this guy, but the hypocrisy, how we treat stuff like this with kid gloves when it's part of the gilded class that's doing it compared to everyone else makes me sick. I'll give you a link in the show notes. Uh, over in Nevada, in Las Vegas, you have prosecutorial misconduct that has led to now two separate overturned convictions by the same prosecutor. From that story, it says, quote, a prosecutor has been reprimanded twice within four months by the Nevada Supreme Court, and now criminal convictions for two men are overturned. So imagine you're a juror, and you hear an expert testify that DNA evidence is inconclusive. But then the prosecutor in a closing argument calls it non-exclusion evidence. Now, that might be confusing, right? Well, that's what Prosecutor Liz Mercer did. The jury convicted the man, and the Nevada Supreme Court is calling it prosecutorial misconduct. The order states, subquote, We admonish Prosecutor Elizabeth A. Mercer for her egregious and manifestly improper statements to the jury. It also states, subquote, We refer Mercer to the State Bar of Nevada for such disciplinary investigations. The robbery conviction of Alexander Severe is now overturned. He remains in prison, and it is not clear whether he will be retried. The order also states this is at least the second case where Mercer misled a jury. In December, another conviction was overturned as well, where Bobby Dale Richards had been convicted of murdering his wife. The Nevada Supreme Court said Mercer committed prosecutorial misconduct during that trial also. Richard remains in prison and is set to be retried. Uh, the I-Team, which is the media folks that covered this, has mentioned Liz Mercer before, as we've been reporting on an FBI investigation into Metro Vice Cops. Notorious pimp Ocean Fleming, in filing his appeals, accused Mercer of previously coaching witnesses for her now husband and former Vice Cop Chris Bachman. 
No one has been charged as a result of that investigation, but sources say it is not over. The district attorney's office is asking the Supreme Court for a rehearing and to take back the bar referral. Uh, So that's in Nevada, out of New York. We've got a pair of stories. One of them is run-of-the-mill. One of them is potentially a huge deal, and we will find out in a minute. So on the -the run-of-the-mill side, six jailers have been indicted for an assortment of abuses. From that story, it says, quote, a woman who arrived at the jail next to Manhattan Criminal Court to visit a detainee last August was given a curt instruction, sign a consent form, and undergo a cavity search. Believing that she had no choice, the woman complied, a prosecutor said in court on Monday. A correction officer told her to pull down her pants and spread her legs, while other officers stood nearby and watched. She was then instructed to lower her underwear and remove a sanitary napkin. The officers found no contraband, the prosecutor said. This search was one of five illegal searches described in a 27-count indictment unveiled on Monday against five guards and a former supervisor who worked at the Manhattan Detention Complex on Center Street, a jail known colloquially as the Tombs. The correction officers were arrested and arraigned in state Supreme Court on charges including official misconduct, conspiracy, unlawful imprisonment, and filing false documents. They all pleaded not guilty and were released without bail. Staff at the city's jails must get written permission to search people they think may be smuggling contraband into the prison. If a visitor consents, a correction officer may only pat their outer clothing and examine the seams and pockets, the indictment said. Staff may also ask people to remove outerwear like coats, hats, and shoes. The correction officers subquote blocked exits surrounded visitors on all sides, forcibly removed visitors' clothing, including their underwear, touched visitors' breasts, examined visitors' vaginal and buttocks areas, forced visitors to squat without pants or underwear, and forced visitors onto the floor, the indictment said. They're also accused of forcing visitors to sign consent forms under false pretenses and lying on official reports to cover up their actions. So just a normal day at the office for New York jailers. But the crazy story out of Queens, where they're having an election this year for their uh, district attorney. Well, I'm just going to read the story to you. Quote, it was billed as a contest of criminal justice reformers, a six-way Democratic primary for district attorney in Queens that would soften the tough-on-crime policies that have long typified this working-class borough of New York. Hours after the polls closed, the race seemed too close to call, with Tiffany Caban, a 31-year-old public defender, holding a narrow lead over Melinda Katz, the Queens Borough president. Ms. Caban declared victory shortly after 11 p.m., telling the crowd at her watch party, We did it, y'all. But Ms. Katz did not concede, speaking to her supporters just before 11 p.m., that every vote would be counted. With 99% of precincts reporting, Ms. Caban led Ms. Katz by 1.3 percentage points. So that's roughly 1,100 votes. Now, let me, let me talk a little bit about this young lady. Uh, and I'm actually able to say young lady and it not be an insult because she's only 31. She's a woman. She's a person of color. She's a lesbian. So like all of those things matter to people who are not accustomed to seeing folks like them in the district attorney's office. But what is wild to me is that she is a public defender. They have elected a – let me back up. It, the election is not officially done yet. This is just the primary, but it's New York. Republicans don't win local races. So she is going to be the next prosecutor for Queens. They are going to elect a public defender as the prosecuting attorney for the Queensboro in New York City. Holy shit. 
So, you know, we've talked about Leia Krasner getting elected in Philadelphia and how that was a big deal. We talked about Rachel Rollins in Boston and how that was a big deal. This has the potential to be huge because not only does New York have this reputation of, you know, prosecuting the fuck out of everybody forever, but Queens is huge. They've got millions of people there. They're, they're, the New York City criminal justice system operates pretty much 24 hours a day. Like night court is a real thing in New York City. It blows my mind. Like, you know, for me, court is done typically at one o'clock. You know, sometimes we'll have afternoon sessions that'll run from two to five, but we don't run a 24 hour incarceration mill like New York City does. And they're electing a public defender to become the prosecutor. Like, that's, that's so fantastic. And she will be in a borough that has so many people that it's going to make a bigger impact than Krasner or Rollins or several of these other, you know, defense attorneys who become DAs. It is fascinating. It's amazing. I love it. You know, that story was from just after the primary. As they're counting the absentee ballots, her lead has actually grown. So she is going to be the next DA. Uh, it's just, it's, it's super fascinating to watch when you consider that when I started my practice just seven years ago, the idea that you would have reform-minded prosecutors was rare. The thought of having defense attorneys as prosecutors was rarer still. And we're now electing defense attorneys to be like prosecutors in major cities, you know, Philadelphia, Boston, now Queens. It's, it's awesome. So that's out of New York. Uh, in North Carolina, we got a pair of stories, both of which are about what you would expect. Uh, out of Charlotte, a Charlotte-Mecklenburg police officer has been charged with giving alcohol to prepubescent kids. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, A Charlotte-Mecklenburg police officer has been charged with two counts of misdemeanor child abuse after giving alcohol to a one-year-old and a six-year-old. Officer Robert Milton, 56, was served with two criminal summonses Friday afternoon, police said. The children are half-brothers, and Milton is the one-year-old's father, Deputy Chief Gerald Smith said. The boy's mother told police what happened on Wednesday, which started the investigation. Smith said both children are okay. Milton, who started working for the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department in 2012, has been placed on unpaid administrative leave. Now, this is the crazy part about Charlotte-Mecklenburg. If you shoot and kill a man, it's no big deal. But if you give alcohol to a toddler, you are promptly arrested. It, you know, it's, it really highlights how fucked up our priorities are. Don't get me wrong. You shouldn't be giving alcohol to kids, especially when they're developing and one is fucking one. Uh, but it's just interesting to look at the history of the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department and how you know, what makes them move quickly versus slow as fuck. Uh, down in Chatham County, which is a little bit south and west of Durham, uh, you know, you hear the phrase cops and Klan go hand in hand and it's intended as a pejorative. Well, in one particular case, it's actually true. It turns out we have a probation officer who is a neo-Nazi in a nutshell. From that story, it says, quote, the North Carolina Department of Public Safety is responding to the alarm raised in an open letter from concerned citizens about Confederate ties of one of its probation officers. During the throes of the fight over the Silent Sam Confederate Monument at UNC Chapel Hill, the North Carolina Division of the Sons of Confederate Veterans was on the front lines, defending the statue of a symbol of proud Southern heritage. Bullshit. It's a participation trophy to fucking traitors. Story continues, quote, the division's commander, Kevin Stone, was a vocal defender. Now, state officials are confirming to ABC 11 that Stone is also a probation officer assigned to Chatham County. ABC 11's calls and emails to Stone and the Sons of Confederate Veterans were not returned. Stone's group led a recent effort to place mega-sized Confederate flags 
flags in every county in the state to, in Stone's words, encourage education about the banner. But to many, the flag symbolizes slavery and racism. A group of concerned citizens wrote an open letter to leaders at the Department of Public Safety, urging Stone's dismissal as an officer of the court. Subquote, it is obvious how Mr. Stone's unconcealed affinity for the racist values of the old Confederacy are in conflict with exercising his job responsibilities fairly and impartially, the letter says. Subquote, the idea that he personally holds substantial influence over the fates of many people of color on probation is an affront to basic values of equal justice under the law. In a statement from DPS Director of Community Corrections Tracy Lee, the agency said it is investigating. Subquote, the NC Department of Public Safety is aware of the concerns raised in the letter. We take these allegations seriously. Community Corrections is looking into the matter and will take actions deemed most appropriate. The department expects its employees to maintain high ethical and moral standards. So the thing about probation is that probation officers have an immense amount of power. They can search your home, car, place of work, make you pee in a cup on command. They can put you in jail for a limited period of time before you ever see a judge or anything else. Uh, so the notion of having a racist as your probation officer when the bulk of people who are on probation tend to be poor and people of color is pretty fucked up. So those are the stories out of North Carolina. Uh, last story for this episode is out of Texas in Laredo. A woman has been arrested and charged with a felony for the heinous, heinous crime of allowing her kids to play outside. From that story, it says, quote, a woman was asleep because she was, subquote, extremely tired while her two children were out in the street, according to Laredo police. Natalie Nicole Silva, 24, was arrested on Wednesday and charged with two counts of abandoning or endangering a child. That's a felony under the Texas Penal Code. A woman waved down a Laredo police officer at about 1144 in the morning Wednesday in the 600 block of East Lyon Street. She stated she was driving on the road when she spotted two small girls in the middle of the roadway. She stopped and got the girls out of the street. Now, I pulled this up on Google Maps because I wanted to see what kind of roadway we're talking about here. It's a normal residential street with blocks of houses and almost no traffic. It's the type of street I played in as a kid. We'd have full-on football games. And when a car came, you got out of the road. But otherwise, the road was your playground. Story continues, quote, Another witness stated he was in the area working when he noticed the two girls outside alone for about 10 minutes. The officer then observed the two girls run inside a residence in the 600 block of East Lyon. There, police located a woman identified as Silva asleep in a bedroom. Police woke her up. She stated she was extremely tired and fell asleep by accident. Authorities turned over the children to a relative and took Silva into custody. So now, you know, God forbid you fall asleep and not be able to know where your kids are. And God forbid they play in the middle of a roadway where kids play because that's a normal place to play, especially when you're living in this area where you don't have a big backyard. You play in the fucking roadway. It's a reminder that our carceral state is dedicated to arresting people for things who should not be crimes, to put them in the system so that we can make sure that we can extract some money out of them in court costs, fines, attorney's fees, etc., etc., and then saddle them with collateral consequences of being charged with a fucking felony because you happen to fall asleep. It's ludicrous. Uh, so, folks, that is our first episode of Season 3. That concludes the stories for this episode. As always, when people ask me how I get these, most of it is from Twitter. You know, I read the news every day, so if I see something, I'll add it in. But if you see something from your state, please feel free to send it to me. Uh, my direct messages are open. That's where I get a lot of them. Feel free to tag me as well. 
And we'll be back next Monday. We're hoping that uh, we can keep churning these out, working through the backlog, and going from there. So in the meantime, we're going to have our Independence Day holiday. So I hope all of you, if you're American, have a great Independence Day. It is my favorite holiday of the year. Uh, and I, I'd like to celebrate. I don't know if I'm going to be able to celebrate much this year because I've actually got to be in court on July 5th, which sucks. Uh, but I'm definitely going to grill some hamburgers and hot dogs and hopefully swim in a pool and enjoy some fireworks. That is my objective. Uh, but to all of you, I hope you have a great Independence Day. And uh, I think Canada Day is coming up too. So for our Canadian listeners, happy Canada Day. I don't actually know when that is, but I know it's somewhere around July 4th. Um, and thank you for listening. Please spread the word that we are back. Uh, because I know some folks, you know, when we were on hiatus for so long, they removed our podcast from uh, their subscriptions. Let them know we are here and to re-subscribe to us. We're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Stitcher, we're on Spotify, we're on all sorts of other services. We are still here and uh, spread the word. So on behalf of myself and Mike, the sound guy, thank you for listening. I hope all of you have a fantastic week and we will talk to you next Monday. Take care. <laughs>